Japan. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, hello everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am here. I am yeah stunned to be joined by Dr. Brian Keating. Um, so thanks for joining me, ma'am. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, so I trust you're recording it, so I don't have to record this time. Yes, no I, I, I've got that all sorted. Don't it's my worry. nightmare to, rec to to do a couple hour interview, an hour interview, and then all of a sudden, oh, it was, I forgot to turn on the recorder, but it's happened to me. And uh, actually, sometimes that's the only way you can tell if you're doing a good job. If you can tell uh, that your guest wants to come back on to re-record the interview that you forgot to tape uh, <laughs> to, to record the tape. But it's a pleasure to be with you, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I mean, and yeah, well, this is episode 263, I think. So I've had every possible thing go wrong so far. Um, like I've had yeah, video not work. I've had like the worst <laughs> audio ever. I learned a lot about what not to do when rec recording audio. <laughs> I've been through the works. Yeah. <laughs> We can compare notes. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But I'd rather talk about, about physics and your book and, and all the cool things that you talk about on your podcast. So yeah, so you're the host of the Into the Impossible podcast, um, author of, um, yeah, Into the Impossible and uh, Losing the Nobel Prize, which I have just started. I haven't um, unfortunately got very far because I've been, I've been deep in your um, interview with um, Eric Weinstein and Avi Loeb, where you talk about the UAP UFO phenomenon. So I'm sure yeah. we'll get to that because that yeah, fascinates me. Mandatory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, love the attitude. So um, the the thing I wanted to start with was the thing that actually kind of kind of surprised me about your book was um, the amount you spoke about imposter syndrome and and you you asked all these these brilliant physicists about about imposter syndrome. It's just it's not a question I would ever think to ask. So like, what <laughs> what prompted you to to make that like uh, not maybe not a focus but like a, a central theme of the book? Yeah, so it started off. Uh, this my second book is called "Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner" or "Into the Impossible: Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner," and it was really precipitated by the fact that I have had the honor of interviewing uh, nine Nobel Prize winners at that time. Now it's close to thirteen uh, Nobel Prize winners, uh, mostly from physics. So I'm trying to get branched out into other Nobel disciplines. I soon will have on an economist. I can ask him about inflation, um, and every guest that I interviewed that's done something of renown that, that brought them him or her to my attention, I always ask my patented, what I call the thrilling three final questions. One of which is, uh, you know, kind of what would you do? What kind of advice would you give to your former self? I phrase it in the form of a quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake of Into the Impossible. He said at one point, uh, the, uh, the only way of determining the limits of what's possible is to venture beyond those limits into the impossible. And I turn that around and say, using that kind of, uh, you know, motif, what would you advise your 20 year old, 30, it depends on how old they are, uh, your 25, you know, year old self to do, to do as you did go into the impossible. And I did that for all my guests. And then one guest in particular, my friend, Barry Barish, who won the Nobel Prize in 2017 for detecting gravitational waves from two black holes that danced around each other for millions of years, decided one day, a billion years ago, to crash into each other and create a super duper black hole, uh, almost twice as massive as either one uh, put together, but also release all this energy that suffuses the cosmos with a uh, particular type of signal called gravitational radiation that he and his team detected in 2015. Uh, and I said to him, uh, you know, Barry, what advice would you give to yourself? He's in his 70s, late 70s at the time. And he said um, to kind of, you know, overcome the imposter syndrome. But he said, I wouldn't tell myself just at age 25, I would tell myself now. And I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. You won the Nobel Prize. You're a professor at Caltech, very prestigious university. Um, you've been the president of all these societies and, and by, you won the Nobel Prize. And he said, no, Brian, when you win a Nobel Prize, something I may never do because I wrote a very critical book called Losing the Nobel Prize. My first book is extremely critical of the Nobel Prizes, uh, the science prizes in particular, but a little bit about the peace prizes as well. And uh, that book, you know, really cast me out of favor, not to mention the fact that when I was invited to uh, nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize, I divulged that fact, which is a confidential breach of their confidentiality. But I explain why in that book. Anyway, Barry Barish, winner of the Nobel Prize, says, no, I have the imposter syndrome now worse than ever, because when you win a Nobel Prize, 
You go to Stockholm, you get your golden medal, which has a picture of Alfred Nobel on it. And um, while Barry was here, I stole his because he brought, he was foolish enough to bring his, no, this is a piece of chocolate that I got at the Nobel Museum in, in Sweden. But anyway, when you go there, you have to sign a book that says, I got this golden medal um, holding it up on video. And that golden medal comes with a million dollar purse. And they want to make sure that you signed off on the release that you know, you're not going to come back and say, oh, where's my money? <laughs> so he said, when you sign that book, they have the same book. It only has, you know, it's only been around for 116 years at that point. So it's a small book. And he couldn't resist being a curious character. And he looked back and he saw the names of the past. He saw uh, Marie Curie. I have all these sock puppets in my office. There's Marie Curie. Uh, and he saw Richard Feynman. And he saw Paul Dirac. But his heart stopped and he felt incredibly unworthy when he saw this guy, Albert Einstein. I have a bobblehead of Albert Einstein here. And he said, I'm not worthy. I'm just not worthy of being in the same category. I'm just some guy from, from Nebraska, you know, that grew up uh, and, uh, you know, never really thought I'd amount to this. How can I be compared to the greatest human scientist ever? And I said, Barry, take comfort because old Albert had his own imposter syndrome when it came to, to this guy, uh, the United Kingdom's very own Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. I have a sock puppet of him as well, of course. <laughs> but Newton, by the way, Barry, I said, not only Newton, who Einstein called the greatest scientist ever, um, not only Newton uh, had uh, was to be jealous of, but Newton himself had the imposter syndrome because Newton was a deeply Christian man. And he believed he failed to live up to the ideals of Jesus Christ. So we all have our own kind of imposter syndromes, it turns out. And I like to think that that gave Barry some comfort. He ended up writing the foreword, one of the two forewords. One is written by James Altucher, who's a famous podcaster here. And um, the other one's written by Barry Barish, uh, the winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize. And hopefully he has overcome uh, this, this imposter syndrome. But I said to myself, if even these titanic intellects, the highest prize humanity gives can feel this. So can you or I, and how do we overcome it? That's the topic of the book. Mm. It's interesting. Like when you were talking about, about it, I, and I wouldn't maybe put Chris Martin from Coldplay quite in the same category, but uh, <laughs> there's a quote from him that always sticks in my mind. He says that the, the greatest arsenal uh, or the greatest weapon in their arsenal is worry. And it, like, do you think that there's any utility to that kind of self-doubt in, in any form? I, th I think there's a, a utility in having maybe a chip on your shoulder to some extent, to, uh, but it can, be, it can be pernicious. It can be subversive to the ultimate goal, which in science, um, you know, you can have the imposter syndrome, I think, in, in athletics and be very justified because it's just objective. You know, this person can run faster, jump higher or whatever. And so if you don't belong there, it'll be obvious. And so maybe you don't even get to feel the imposter syndrome. But intellectually, it's hard to make the case that it's a beneficial thing rather than what's called a limiting belief that can hold you back. Because when you have that, if you counteract that by you know, saying, well, no, I'm actually great. I'm the best. You know, that's not good either. So it's the one thing where the antidote to the syndrome or whatever is almost as bad as the syndrome itself. In other words, it's very difficult, Josh, to have a balance between humility and swagger. And I think you need that to be successful. You shouldn't be like, I'm nothing. Um, you know, I'm, I have no point. I'm no good. Everyone has a talent. Everyone has an ability. And most scientists fail far, far, far more, including Einstein. Einstein was arguably wrong more than he was right. And I always say it's too bad because he could have had a good career. But, um, but in reality, you have to make mistakes. As, as Edison said, greatest inventor of all time, perhaps, you know, he said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I just found 10,000 different paths to, you know, to the light bulb filament that didn't work. But these are experiments. And I think if you handicap yourself by saying you're not good enough, you'll never be good. I think that's ultimately self-destructive. Mm. Now, you, you talk to quite a lot of people who, and explore quite a lot of topics, and I really enjoy it, that are maybe considered to be a little bit out there or sort of countering the mainstream narrative of, of physics and science, um, especially when you're talking to people like, as you mentioned, like Eric, Eric Weinstein, Avi Loeb, Eric, who is particularly critical of um, yeah dogmatic views in, in science. It, and it, 
it makes me think that like you, you need that confidence in order to be able to sort of stand out on your own and say, no, 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 you're all wrong. <laughs> so like, do, how do you go about addressing these these issues on on your podcast like openly as a, a like a well-respected scientist the issues that and ideas that may be seen insane and and you, like you definitely lean into it with your podcast titles which i really love um but like how, how do you go about having the the confidence to just go for it and say yeah well you know why not explore these things when yeah. perhaps like you might be opening yourself up to to, to ridicule like not from me yeah. yeah i'm just an idiot no, 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 but like from <laughs> other scientists <laughs> yeah congratulations for basically asking me my own question of how do i go into the impossible which i i don't really feel like i do on occasion i i have the rarest of all human traits which is which is courage but you're absolutely right and i take solace in the fact that some of my greatest heroes were both purveyors of the, you know, kind of anti, you know, investigatory phenomena of things that, you know, might not make sense or so forth, uh, but also great, great champions of what I call, you know, outreach to the public. And I always say, and, you know, my, my kind of thing that I've gotten in trouble for lately is saying that I believe scientists have a moral obligation, you know, not just a, a financial, a fiduciary, but we have a moral obligation to explain things that the public is interested in, in terms the public can understand. At least in the U.S. and certainly in the U.K., every scientist at some level or other was supported by the government, and the government supported by taxes in the West. So, in my mind, we have an obligation. I was support. I teach at a public college, right? So my customers that pay my salary uh, are entitled to learn things about phenomena that they're interested in, in terms they can understand. Now, that doesn't mean they can tell me what to research. I, I do have academic freedom to pursue the research topics. But outside of research, I will be damned if someone's going to tell me that I can't look into some phenomena that happens to be interesting. And what I've had the great fortune to do is to kind of uh, in America, we say, or in Canada, we'd say, you know, skate where the puck is going based on my contacts with this great you know, cohort of individuals who've come on my show. In other words, if it wasn't for the podcast, I don't know if I'd be talking to people like Avi Loeb uh, um, or, or Eric Weinstein or conventional scientists like the 13 Nobel Prize winners, um, because it's given me a vehicle to express something that's not part of what we teach to our students in my undergraduate or graduate classes, which is, you know, communicating to the public in terms they can understand, never dumbing it down, you know, my motto on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, is always be curious, ABC. And people always point out that scientists are like children in terms of their inquisitiveness. So why wouldn't we be curious about possibilities of, of other, you know, technologies beyond the earth? And now it's so interesting. And of, of course, I'm nowhere near what like Avi Loeb is doing. Mm. But, you know, in terms of the interest, now we're seeing like NASA get interested in doing that. Very orthodox, scientific, very NASA doesn't move, you know, on the latest, hottest trend. Um, and they don't even respond to things like flat earth, you know, uh, theories. They're not going to bother with that. So the fact that they are now spending a lot of taxpayer money with some of the best scientists in the world investigating this phenomenon, uh, it means that it's, it's, it's somehow acceptable in the mainstream. But I'm pleased to say I've been looking at this for years now, and I'm not alone, uh, obviously. There are people here along before me, uh, my friend Lex Friedman and Joe Rogan and, and folks like that that have gotten interested in it and brought it to the attention. But what, where I differ, I'm a university professor, tenured professor, and um, I'm an author and a research scientist that's co-leading a big collaboration. So there is some more gravitas than a Joe Rogan, as smart or as good as he is, or Lex, you know, who I've been on his show mm. discussing these things, um, you know, they bring a different perspective. Uh, and, and so from my point of view, I kind of feel like I've been given a platform. And if you don't use your platform, what's the point of having one? So I, I, I'm not in either camp. I think I approach it purely scientifically. I give credit where credit's due. I take to task people on both sides of the equation. Because I think uh, that's the scientific way to approach it. If you go into a conclusion, knowing what your predefined um, you know, conclusion is going to be, you're not approaching it scientifically. It may be interesting. It may not be wrong, but it's not a scientific way to approach it. Mm. No, I, I, I really, I really amused me when I was listening to that, that conversation that, I, that I'd referenced, just because you were, you were talking about a lot of topics that, or you were given like a lot of reasons for wanting to explore this and sort of things that made it more credible that 
my friends and I would have sat around in university at three o'clock in the morning, you know, like, <laughs> like out of our out of our fucking trees, exactly, and just being like, you know, they arrived just when the nuclear power plant started to appear, <laughs> and then we were the crazy idiots then, right? But all of right. a sudden, like these 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 ideas are being discussed by people like yourself, and do you think it's it's crossed a uh, crossed a threshold where? It's acceptable to talk to talk about it now that you know the the New York Times has come out with their um, papers from or the the releases from the Pentagon and people like you are are discussing it. Is it have we crossed a threshold where it doesn't seem ridiculous anymore? I I think so. I mean, it's undoubtedly so. What you just said is absolutely correct, and I want to just hi, you know highlight you and give you the gold star A plus you know for for catching the vibe of what the podcast endeavors to do. I always say. You know, in college, you waste your college years because you're fixated on getting the next job or next promotion, getting the A plus or whatever. So you don't really sit there and dwell. But like, what was the most fun about being at university? For me, it was the 3 a.m., you know, hanging out in the dorm with a bunch of friends and pizza and some drinks and just like, what the hell is that? You know, what's it all about? What does it all mean? That's the vibe I'm aiming for a college dorm that you go to. You don't have to pay college tuition and you can uh, do it with a drink in your hands unlike the college students that I teach now, they don't bring drinks to, to school anymore. Unfortunately, I don't know, maybe they should, but um, so that's the exact vibe that we're going for now. Is it being undoubtedly so now on the other hand um, you have to give credit where it's due, right? So one of the people that got the attention in the New York times was a man by the name of Tom DeLong, who is a guitarist and musician for blink 182. Uh, and I was, you know, honored or, you know, blessed or, you know, cursed <laughs> with doing a podcast with Tom DeLong last year. I was the first person to ever do a podcast with him, uh, you know, live taking questions. And that was with him and a guy who used to work for the CIA named James Semivan, um, uh, as well as my friend and fellow podcaster, Kurt Jaimungal, who's in Canada. So we did this massive thing. It's one of the, I think it might be my most viewed podcast uh, of all time uh, for now, at least. And that, uh, um, was you know really dedicated to what, what Tom has brought to attention of the media, to the public, and even scientific circles. Now I take Tom to task. That's my that's my rule. Nobody gets a free pass. No one's going to come on the Into the Impossible podcast spouting dogma and not get challenged. You can spout dogma, but I'm going to push back. I'm always going to do it with respect because honestly, I want my colleagues, you know, and friends, obviously, to feel welcome, not pull punches. I'm not doing gotcha sixty minutes inter style interviews. Um, but we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to push back with respect. So I said to Tom, you claim you have not only evidence for extraterrestrial you know, craft, but you actually have possession of it. And uh, in that interview, he talks about this material and why it's so kind And then he admits that there's no uh, complete chain of custody of this material. He, he says there is you know, provable, but the provenance cannot be completely established. And okay, so that might work, you know, if you're selling an artifact on eBay or something like that, where people kind of expect to be, you know, maybe uh, buyer beware. But in the media, I said to him, you have to be very careful with that in scientific circles. That doesn't fly. I, don't, I can't say, oh, you know, I found this, this meteorite, which by the way, your listeners, Josh, if they live in the US, I'm sorry, I cannot ship overseas, but I will send a fragment of this meteorite. So here's a meteorite that's 4 billion years old. I have some, this is very expensive. I have some dust left over from a bigger sample of it. That's honest to goodness. I will send a sample to people that sign up uh, using uh, their first name and the last name GIST. So they have to use GIST in the uh, sign up list on my email list in America only, uh, brianketing.com slash list. I will send you some genuine space dust. Now, if I told you you know, Josh, uh, I don't know. This this was like found. Trust me, uh, it came from an alien craft, and uh, and you know, it's nothing like any material we have on Earth. Um, uh, at least it was until I lost custody. You wouldn't believe such a claim. No. Uh, the fact is, I can trace this meteorite back to proto solar system origin. I have chemical composition of it, but I'm also not making so grand a claim as as namesake of the Cosmo series. Carl Sagan used to say, "Extraordinary claims." require extraordinary evidence. So he's claiming, Tom DeLong has claimed, claimed on my podcast, he had extraordinary evidence, um, but uh, uh, made an extraordinary claim and for which he didn't, he had <laughs> non-extraordinary or ordinary evidence for. Um, so I try to hold people, if they're participating in the scientific discussion, to a task. Now, I've also had on fighter pilots and, and people, you know, that discuss, you know, kind of the veracity of eyewitness accounts. And then I have on skeptics like Mick West, a very famous skeptic 
uh, who lives in California as well. And I'll have him, I'll take him to task and we'll talk about, you know, a lot of the criticism that his reproductions as a, as a brilliant, intelligent, but not a scientist. He's a video game designer who created Tony Hawk's, um, you know, electronic arts game. And, you know, he can do amazing stuff. Uh, he's good at very kind of low level debunking uh, and best in the world in some cases, but the higher level requires stuff like Avi's doing and or government secrets. So that's things like Jim Semiban. Now, Jim was on the podcast with Tom DeLong, and he said there are things, you know, that prevent the government from lying. And, you know, there's no <laughs> comment that any one of my guests have ever made that has gotten as much uh, controversy as that. So, yeah, I'll put that on, uh, on my playlist so your, your uh, folks can, can, can watch it. But that's a method of, I think, what is needed. We need to debate with love. In other words, I can't say I hate you, your ideas, Josh, because eventually me hating your ideas will transfer to me hating you. And I don't want to, I don't ever want to have that. I, you know, I don't have to, I don't get paid to do the podcast. I do it for fun. So if it's not fun, I'll cease to do it. And, but in that spirit, you have to be open, willing, honest to engage with your debate counterpart and do so with love. And I think through doing so we can come to truth. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful sentiment, man. Um, so to, to, to get down to the brass tacks of it, where does your feeling lie on what we are looking at with with this phenomenon and like because for me i was looking at the pentagon releasing the videos uh when they first came out and i was just like is, is this is this disclosure is is this it is like uh, have we all just blinked and missed it like is the <laughs> do you know like you expect a big press conference and then the ship comes down and the aliens yeah. come out you know <laughs> right but but I, and then i I hadn't thought about about like what what else it could possibly be, and then sort of there's been people reasoning that you know it could be like military aircraft, it could be like an advertising campaign for new technology, it could be um, the U.S. government attempting to intimidate China and Russia into just like look what we got, boys. Like, where does where does your feeling lie on what it is? Just roughly <laughs> yeah so i i always point out you know it's i never say I, I you know that belief belongs in these kinds of discussions for example i say i have a video i do solo kind of explainer videos about science about physics astronomy sometimes about unexplained phenomena i have a video called i don't believe in gravity and i'm an astrophysicist so why don't i say i believe in gravity? well i don't have to believe in gravity like i believe in Buzz Lightyear or, you know, whatever, or, or, you know, some other, um, you know, founding myths of America or something like that. Oh, I don't have to, I have evidence for gravity. It's been tested exquisitely using scientific methods since the time of Galileo, another finger puppet can come out now. So Galileo took evidence that one of the greatest human beings, scientists, intellects in human history, by a man by the name of Aristotle, he had a claim. Aristotle believed that um, heavy objects like uh, these meteorites will fall faster in gravity than this lightweight sock puppet of Isaac Newton. All right. So uh, what, what did Galileo do? He went out and did an experiment. No, heavy things don't fall faster than lighter ones. He even did a thought experiment that Aristotle could have done. Um, and then he did an actual experiment, allegedly at the Leaning Tower of Pisa. They dispute if that actually happened. Anyway, he didn't have to take on faith that Aristotle was right. He proved him wrong using evidence. So right now the evidence is inconclusive and where my friend, uh, and I truly mean that, I don't, I don't mean that euphemistically too. Eric and I, Eric Weinstein and I are very good friends um, and I've interviewed him many times on my podcast as well as his brother, Brett and Brett's wife and, and talking about the nature of the evidentiary kind of conclusion that can be drawn at this time. Um, the, there is no evidence that to me is conclusive about these being extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, it could be that the data are not sufficient. That's where Avi comes in. So Avi comes in to collect data from an astronomer. Now, I'm an astronomer, so I can actually collect data. I can actually help. And I was until last, uh, last month, a member of the external advisory committee for Avi Loeb's Galileo project. Eric is a member of the research staff of the Galileo project. So it's very different. I was kind of impartial auditing, et cetera. Um, and, and due to time constraints, I stepped away from that, but Avi and I, obviously you can tell are very close friends. Now that role that I have is to say, what are the limits of data? What would be the limits of data? You know, people are talking nowadays, like Elon Musk will tweet out, well, 
you know, here's how high quality UF, uh, uh, iPhone technology, camera technology has improved exponentially over the last 14 years. And here's the same crappy, grainy, blurry quality of these UFO images, so to speak. So I can speak to that. What does it really mean? And what, when Eric says something like, show us the data, what is the data? So I actually disagree with him there with respect, as I always say, I do. And that's that the, what an astronomer considers data is very different from what you know, the lay use of that term means, you know, like, is eyewitness data? Is that really data? Um, is a photograph really data? And I make the point uh, using, you know, images that I have here, say in my laboratory, I've got uh, a photographic plate from, you know, before either one of us was born of a galaxy that's uh, millions of light years away from earth. Um, is this data? Well, it's data of a kind, but you can't actually do anything with it. It's just kind of like a pretty picture. Um, on the other hand, here's some here's some data from that object. It's called a spectrum. Uh, it's very hard to see if you're watching on video, but trust me, there's a little like a black and white rainbow. Uh, this picture shows the chemical fingerprint of the atoms that make up that galaxy, but it can't show certain things like dark matter that we know is in that galaxy. So you have to understand the limits of the word data. So when people say NASA release the data, they don't really understand what the implications of that are, nor are they really in touch with the limitations of what that would produce. For example, Avi is you know, convinced that this object called Oumuamua with 90% certainty came from another solar system and is not um, a meteor or a comet or a nitrogen iceberg or whatever, that it's actually technological in origin. It's extrasolar technology. Um, and because of that, that's an extraordinary claim. So where's the evidence? For? So Avi would like nothing better than say, not only is there, a, is there you know, evidence for it, data for it, image of it, here's actual spectrum composition. We went to it. We took a sample. We haven't done that yet. But mm. these are all things that would collect what astronomers would qualify as data. Then a scientist like me, who's not an expert in aliens, can make the scientific method application to those data, to that claim, and assess what is the probability, not only of them being right, but of them being wrong. And that's what most UFO people, you know, who want to believe, and they've got the posters, and they've got the UFO and the big head aliens, you know, I want to believe, you know, that there, that there could be like, you know, I don't know, but you don't say I want to have evidence, you go out and collect the evidence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we get more. Yeah, that's all I can. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, I'd love the Galileo project to to continue to to gather more 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 data on that. So, I've got a more philosophical question for you on this kind of topic. Is because um, anytime I think about this, my head goes right. Okay, so then theoretically, say we make contact, whatever that means, or we find the crashed craft, as <laughs> as the New York Times has somehow said that we have. I don't know. Anyway, they, they they printed it, not me. Like, right, Tom. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, and then I, it always brings me to this quote that's like kind of attributed to Carl Jung, but I can't find exactly the origin of it. But it's like basically like beware of unearned wisdom. And I mm. like, do you think we should be trying to steal technology or like you know you utilize technology that maybe like hundreds or maybe thousands of years beyond what we're capable of doing by ourselves like is that a dangerous road to go down like if we haven't like earned it well you know i've never heard that josh described as a danger to for us to use i've heard a danger of us transmitting broadcasting our existence in the same way that you know uh, that indigenous peoples you know, shouldn't have notified the, you know, Portuguese explorers of the 1400s mm -hmm. that they existed because it, it never works out well for them. And as, um, you know, Stephen Hawking said, you're basically sending them a dinner menu. I actually think that's a little bit overwrought. I've never heard the argument that we shouldn't do it because we might unleash technology, you know, that we can't handle or that could hurt us in some way. It's an interesting thing to consider. Eric Weinstein, again, he has speculated that you know, one of the biggest reasons that he's interested as a theoretical physicist, Harvard trained theoretical physicist, is because he wants to see if there truly are limitations on the laws of physics that basically constrain us for all time to be bound to planet Earth by the both vastness of interstellar space and the trivial slowness, uh, ironically, of the speed of light. And so Einstein said that nothing can travel faster nothing material can travel faster than the speed of light, which is 300,000 kilometers per second. Um, if that's true, that sounds like a fast speed, but I, I point out 
just yesterday, I, I tweeted out or, um, uh, a tweet that has to do with the farthest object ever made by human beings. This object is, you know, I don't even know how many miles it is. It's such an astronomically large number. It was launched in 1977, Voyager 1. It's now 21 hours away from Earth traveling at the speed of light. So if you shot a light beam at it, it would take 21 hours to get there and 21 hours to get back reflecting off of it. And we still communicate with it. It sends a very faint radio signal once a month or a couple times a month back to NASA, and we can still see it. That object was launched 16,467 days ago, and it's less than one light day away, which means this object traveling at 10, 16 kilometers per second, the farthest thing humans have ever made hasn't even reached one light day. Now, the nearest star is, uh, is about 1,200 times farther away than where Voyager is. So it would take 1,200 times 40, you know, half a century. So you're talking about like six, you know, you know we're talking many, many centuries <laughs> to get out to where this thing would be, uh, to where the nearest star would be. And there's not even clear evidence that life exists. So what Eric wants to do is short circuit that. What if you could bend it such that, no, you could get one, light year away in the equivalent of one second. Um, you know, he claims that could be possible. Um, and so for that reason, he has a stake in that. Now, I have heard it said a version of what he's talking about or what you mentioned, which is the potential dangers of unlocking technology we're not ready for. And, I, you know, in, in other words, if someone had, um, had given us the keys to the nucleus, as was first unlocked in the 1930s and 40s, leading to the atomic bomb, the fission bomb first, and the fusion bomb second. That unleashed incredible technology. That technology increased incredible destructive power. Now, what if we released that in the 1800s to a man named Alfred Nobel, who invented dynamite? And that creation was also credited with killing millions of people. Uh, and he was actually called the merchant of death for creating an amidst the 340 Five other patents that he had. Uh, that one patent made him the equivalent of you know, Elon Musk of his time. Now, that wouldn't do him no good if you all of a sudden said, here's a neutron and proton, and here's some tritium, and go ahead and make it. He couldn't do anything with it. So I don't think there's a danger to us of having alien technology. I think there could be a danger to us from aliens if they do exist. Although I can't imagine if, they're, if they are, let's say the speed of light is a limit, um, that you know they would have to travel you know such enormous timescales even using the most advanced even if you you know multiply it by sixteen thousand times um, it still would be you know barely enough to to reach you know to last this forty five year uh, time span and round trip so anyway I think it's it's quite fascinating that we have a um, the ability to detect things out to great distances and. To just now think about the sociological implications is really what you're asking of an interaction between our limited technology on one hand, although it's the only advanced technology we know exists in the universe. So we should have some pride, again, imposter syndrome. We should balance our swagger of what we've created with the humility that there could be even greater creations lurking out there. Mm. I mean, it, you, you made me think of something that that um, was in the book Um and you were talking about, I can't remember which chapter it was, but you were uh, discussing the possibility that the Big Bang was not the, the Big Bang was not just the beginning of everything, that it was possibly the, the end cycle of the previous universe. And there's like an endless, endless, endless cycle of, of universes starting and beginning. Do you, do you feel like that, that is the, what we should be looking at? Cause for me, it seems like, I, I I struggle to wrap my head around the concept that there was no beginning and end of anything. Do, right. do you know what I mean? Because I, I, that the, is is your sense that there was like previous universes that that sort of yeah collapsed in on themselves after the heat death and they all go straight <laughs> back in and then like like one of those balls that that like expands and <laughs> goes back in again. Uh, what do you think? Like, does your scientific brain say, yeah, that's possible? Because my like my brain says, no, there had to have been a beginning to something. Yeah, it's the most uh, kind of you know incomprehensible thing about the universe, as Einstein said, is that it's comprehensible. But now what you're talking about is something called the multiverse. Mm. Um, or maybe even uh, its alter, you know, form, which is called the cyclic universe or bouncing mm. cosmological model. 
so where I love to explore is whether or not um, science can answer the question either way. In other words, first, before you start saying what you prefer or what is most aesthetically pleasing to you, you have to ask the question of, can you actually ascertain if this falls in the purview of science or not? Um, there are things that that folks have conjectured about, and I've had lots of conversations with philosophers like David Chalmers, um, uh, who coined this term called the hard problem of consciousness, um, to folks like Philip Goff in the UK, Durham, I think, um, about uh, consciousness as well. And that's whether or not the brain can can really be studied within the context of the scientific method. You know, it's the thing that's studying the thing. And so, you know, how does the telescope kind of look back on itself? How does it observe itself? Where does it come from? Is matter necessary before consciousness? Um, all these are scientifically testable within certain limits, but anything outside of that, I think can fall into the, into the uh, prospects of, of feasible to be, to be studied in, by a proper scientific approach. So I don't try to make the conclusion as to what I prefer. I actually don't have preferences. You know, I have preferences for like what type of person my kid should turn out to be, you know, what to have for dinner, um, you know, where I should go on vacation. I don't really have preferences about science because it's also rich. It's, I call it, you know, and, and your, your listeners have, you know, been exposed to so many different guests that you've had on the show. And a lot of times in things like business, you've had a lot of like business leaders, thought leaders, authors, et cetera. Like even with authors, like if you read one of my books, I hope you'll read all of my books someday, uh, your listeners, but if you read one, you're choosing not to, you know, read another book. You're choosing not to watch a cat video on YouTube. Uh, you're choosing not to do something healthy, like, you know, drive uh, to the gym. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so it's all about, you know, attention and, and how you spend your attention. So for me, I don't really spend my attention thinking about what I could spend because no matter what the case is, unlike your business guests, like for Apple to succeed, you know, it's not good if Samsung succeeds as much, right? I mean, you want Apple wants to be a monopoly uh, ultimately, or, or you know, or if uh, Tesla makes a car, they don't, they really want to sell all the cars. They don't want to sell, you know, just a little bit more than than a rival, right? So, in science, it's not like that. You don't. It's called an infinite game. The game, the object of the game is to keep playing the game, not to win the game like chess or basketball or cricket. So, I think for those reasons. I, I tend not to ask myself what I prefer, even with these aliens and stuff. Like, would I like it if they were alien? You know, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, again, it's impossible to know if they exist. First of all, uh, at, at present, to conclusively say they definitely exist, I don't think anyone who says that is saying it from a scientific evidentiary standpoint. On the other hand, the potential for them to exist does exist. So therefore, it's a kosher, proper study topic that I and my colleagues can and should engage in. So if you had one area of physics or science, or maybe not even something that someone said to you, okay, you're going to work 40 years on whatever problem you choose, but I promise you at the end, you will have the answer. What would that be? Um, I guess, you know, it's, it's, if it was purely scientific or in the realm of my work or I mean, yeah. for me, it's really, I have, you know, blessed to have children and, you know, people like Elon Musk or you know, Eric or, you know, people, they talk about time travel and, you know, that's the thing that they really want space. Elon wants to go to Mars. Eric wants to go beyond the galaxy or the solar system. Mm. Um, I don't think about those terms. I think about teleporting. What matters most to me is not my body. It's not my money. You know, I don't want to be buried in a sarcophagus in the pyramid with all my golden treasures or my scientific papers. No, I want to transmit my values, my, my wisdom, not my knowledge. And to me, I can do that. I, I just can't be there to witness it. You know, I can go to the future with my values, both through my biological children that I'm blessed to have and my ideological, you know, uh, I don't want to say children, but people that I have been blessed with the honor of mentoring my graduate students, my undergraduate students, I've mentored thousand, a thousand people in 20 years. And, um, and, and, you know, they, uh, I can't say that all of them, you know, came away thinking of me as, as a mentor, I love, you know, love the learning that they had for me, but a core did. And those people like the few children that I am blessed to have, um, can transmit a little bit of the wonder, the curiosity 
and maybe some of my wisdom into the future. And I think to ask for more than that is just simply greedy. So for me, I want to know, you know, a hundred years, a thousand years, a billion years, you know, what was my impact? Because it's very difficult, Josh, to measure, did I have an impact? You can have people like, um, you know, I just saw like, and I'm not casting aspersions on him. I'd love to have a conversation with Elon, but I just saw like his, his, one of his children uh, is estranged um, themselves. I think they go by them maybe now uh, from Elon. And it just broke my heart, you know, because just a few days ago in America, I don't know if, what it's like in another country, but we had Father's Day and he tweeted out how he loves all those kids so much. And he's really big on population, uh, like not having population be limited. He wants to have, you know, growth in human population, not restriction. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of like broke my heart as a father, just thinking like one of my kids being estranged from me, even if I got to Mars, even if I won the Nobel Prize, even if I did, it was the richest man on earth, it's not enough. If to me, and I'm sorry, I'm not judging him again. I love him. I'd love to talk to him. He's, you know, the person that I'm most fascinated with, you know, outside of my family and, and, you know, but when you think about that, Josh, like, um, that would really break my heart. And if you can't really, and, and I'm not saying either one of them is wrong. I, I haven't really investigated it. And I hate the fact that I pay attention to like TMZ and people, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes on Twitter, you know, if you're in the restroom, that's what you're going to do. And certainly he does that in the bathroom as well as we know. So anyway, <laughs> my point is I want to know if my values made it to the future, not if my, you know, scientific idea was right or wrong. Uh, I guess if I had to answer one scientific question, uh, if I had, a, if I could know the mind of God or Mother Nature or whatever, it would be: Was there a single Big Bang, or were there multiple Big Bangs? That would be the most interesting question, I think, and that's the one I've chosen to study my scientific career, dedicate my career to. Mm. Do you? I've got two questions in my head here. I'll go for the first yeah. one. Do you see mortality as a gift or a curse? Oh, that's a very deep question. Never been, uh, never been asked that that question before. I think it's um, a goal of mine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great one. And and also, you know, I commend you on all the amazing work that you've done and and the and you're doing all this yeah, as a, as such a wonderful free service to the public and I want to congratulate you on on your vast success and oh, and may continue. Thanks. Um but um but I often think like how do you know you're a good podcaster or not? Like uh, I'm not just asking you like uh and I and I'm curious to how you would know it. One way is is what you just did or what I just said. I think when someone says, no one's ever asked me that before, that's, that's a grade, right? You don't get like, there's no professor of podcasts. Maybe I should change my title, actually, the professor <laughs> of podcasts. That's kind of cool, doesn't it, Josh? Uh, but, um, but you don't get a grade, you know, sometimes you know you did a crappy interview. I've never not like published an interview, but, uh, but there's some that I'm like, oh man, if I could have a do-over, I would like to do that again. Uh, but um, that's one of them. Another one is if you, yeah, if you screwed up the recording, and the guest is like, oh, I'd love to come back on. Uh, that's another one. Um, and uh, so there are very, very few things uh, like that. But um, but that's, anyway, that's just a side note for those of you who are interested in podcasting. How do you know you're doing a good job? It's very hard to know. Other than leave a review of uh, The Gist uh, on Apple Podcasts. Let exactly. me do that. And uh, YouTube. <laughs> and also uh, check out the Into the Impossible podcast on both platforms. Leave a review. And an asterism, a small constellation of five stars, no less. Anyway, um, so meaning from life. Yes, there's a famous book that I quote in the beginning of losing the Nobel Prize called Denial of Death. Um, and that book is about, uh, by Ernest Becker, famous book about how most of what we do from building pyramids uh, to putting our names on hospitals uh, to naming podcasts after ourselves and winning a Nobel Prize, you know, these are things done with the abject intention of, uh, of achieving some form of immortality beyond our physical limitation. I mean, you and I are talking over what would have been considered magic, you know, just two decades ago. Um, and as the opening of my podcast always starts with Arthur C. Clarke, again, it's named after his, his famous words. He uh, said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we quote his actual voice in the opening of my podcast. Now that is, you know, kind of highlights the fact that, you know, we're obsessed with transcending the physical scientific world, which would mean immortality uh, if you didn't die. So I actually think the um, and 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 one last thing that I do ask all my guests is, um, what do you want to leave as your ethical will 
when you do die at the biblical age of 120 years old, the age that Moses lived to be, but never got into the promised land. I think that's a very apt metaphor for what scientists, you'll never win science. You'll never, you know, even if you want to Nobel prize, as I told you, you can still have the imposter syndrome. You can still have barriers to entry to win. But anyway, um, I think it, ultimately life has meaning because of the notation and the notion of the passage of time. And we have various clocks by which we measure time, one of which is the biological clock, that you get older, that you don't see people getting younger. And that, I think, is a gift in a certain sense. Uh, the ultimate expression of that book, Denial of Death, is to make life worth living. Now, would I want, yeah, I mean, I would like, you know, I take vaccines and, <laughs> and I use uh, uh, medications, all legal, of course. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I would like to live as long as possible. Uh, but maybe I only feel that way because, you know, I've lived knowing that I'm going to die someday and knowing that you don't know when that day is. In fact, I quote from the Talmud, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, and I do quote a lot, but not in a proselytizing way, but I think there's some wisdom. And one of the pieces of wisdom is like, repent the day before you die, you know, make your peace the day before you die. Let's say you don't like repent because you're atheist. Fine. <laughs> you make your peace with how you live with whatever value system you have. And everybody has a value system day before you die. I don't know when I'm going to die. Yeah, that's exactly the point. You could die tomorrow. You could literally die tomorrow. And would you want to be doing what you're doing right now? That's what you have to ask yourself. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's a very sobering thing. But if you didn't die, um, you know, I think, I think, yes, you would, you would miss out on some of the existential meaning of life. But, um, but that said, I'm working as hard as possible, you know, on my health and hopefully uh, some smart listeners out there will invent uh, what one of my kids calls the never dying pill and win a Nobel prize for that. Would you take it? Um, yes. I, I, so uh, a very famous scientist, Richard Feynman said, if you ask a lay person, do you want to live forever? Most of them will say, no, all my friends will all die and stuff like that. Um, I'd like to be greedy and like give it to everyone I love. And, and, and um, but he said, a scientist will always answer. Yeah, because I want to live forever. Cause I want to see the cool science and all the discoveries that come. And ironically, he didn't live that long. He died, I think before his 80th birthday. And, and he was a, uh, and amazing, but his influence lives on ideologically, literally on millions of people around the world. Yeah, his YouTube videos are very famous for learning. That got me yeah. through my university exams with my two weeks of cramming. Exactly, <laughs> and he didn't even uh, YouTube. The internet didn't exist when he died. The internet did not exist in 1989. Just wild. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm of that generation that really struggles to picture what life would have been like. I, I just, I, I physically can't imagine it it's such a weird thing like i you know you, you can get wi-fi whatever country you're in now it doesn't it's not like going on holiday like separates you from that even anymore it's like i i actually have no sense of what that would be like it's 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 really strange <laughs> no like, i know i mean the yeah. grass is always greener syndrome tells me oh it'd be way better but <laughs> you know yeah i just i've just no idea um so Speaking of 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 this, the idea of of perhaps like taking your consciousness and like transforming it and taking it into the 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 world of AI and like taking your brain and putting it in a computer, like it, it, I I often wonder about whether that's actually physically possible because it kind of it, it hinges on the idea that that the consciousness or like the soul or whatever it is that gives us sentience can be measured and if it can be measured then theoretically it could be stored but then maybe not even like do do you mm. think that consciousness is something that that can be measured at, at all like is there is there something there that we can put like parameters on and say well yes you have got a you know, I don't even know what the units of measurement would be, but you know. <laughs> you know. yeah, it's certainly a topic I've talked a lot about. As I said, Phil Goff and uh, David Chalmers um, did part of the interview wearing a virtual reality headset. Uh, he's very uh, much in favor of something called like the simulation hypothesis, kind of like the Matrix uh, movies. Um, so I don't, um, I personally think that consciousness can be studied. Uh, it isn't maybe as entirely studyable as you could say, study the nervous system of an African toad. You know, in other words, it's not really subject in the same ways to 
the experimental version of the scientific method where you're like, you examine something that has no consciousness that is in every other way controlled to be identical to consciousness like us. Um, then there are people that believe that inanimate objects participate in consciousness like electrons. And, and in fact, that's the title of my podcast with Philip Goff, you know, are electrons conscious or they are conscious. Um, uh, the other one with Chalmers is like the, the matrix was a documentary. Uh, so I like to be provocative in the time, but um, the, the notion that, you know, consciousness is somehow outside of it is not really uh, an, an, an acceptable kind of notion for me. Now, that being said, how quantitative can you be studying consciousness? I think it's very hard. Past guest, uh, Sir Roger Penrose and his colleague, um, uh, Stuart Hameroff, they believe that you can study consciousness. For example, one vector towards understanding it is through the unconscious state that Dr. Stuart Hameroff induces in his anesthesiology patients when he, before he operates or whatever. So he controls consciousness. Now he augments that with a theory of quantum mechanics that can participate in consciousness. So that's when things start to break down in my mind. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're wrong, uh, but you can then start to pick apart those arguments and, and subject them to the scientific method, which also ultimately has to involve the consensus of the community, not for the authority of numbers like, oh, 97% of scientists agree that consciousness is in the microtubules. Of, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean just like they believe you because belief is not part of the scientific method but rather that they agree that your methodology is replicable, that you can be falsified, not just proven, and all sorts of other criteria and hurdles that have to be passed. So I believe it's, it's an acceptable kosher part of the scientific uh, endeavor. I just don't know to what extent fruitful quantitative analyses can be built, but that could be mostly because of my ignorance on the subject. On the other hand, I think I can speculate as well as David Chalmers, who's an expert, you know, on the actual consciousness at a, at a gut level, philosophical level, we can talk about things like what would be the implications of the matrix as reality um, if we are simulated or Donald Hoffman, who was on my podcast last year, who believes that consciousness is basically an evolutionary, you know, guise to help us cope with the gigabytes of information that come in every second and basically, uh, it, uh, there's no reality to our consciousness. Um, so I do believe we can, we, I am just as capable. You might just be just as capable because I don't think there's experiments or, uh, you know, methodologies or tools that need come into play. So for those reasons, I, I, uh, I think it's, it's worth studying. It's interesting. I think sometimes the claims of, you know, electrons in my coffee cup, you know, my vodka bottle here are conscious. Uh, I think those are overblown, but they're fun to speculate on. And so I will engage and indulge in that. And uh, many occasions I have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I go back and forth on the idea that like places and buildings and animal objects can be conscious and they, or have a feeling or a vibe, or I don't know that, that they can engender the, the, the atmosphere that was around them. And, and then I like, I, so I used to, I used to run an après ski bar in Austria and I walk oh, wow. into that place and it's just magic. And it feels like there's magic in the wood that they built it from. And th then I'm just like, well, yeah, this bar is totally conscious. Like there's a video of me, <laughs> there's a video of me um, lying on the bar on the, the last day of one of my seasons, like stroking the bar, being like, I'm coming back, baby. It's okay. <laughs> like, so, you know, <laughs> I go back and forth on this idea. But um, if uh, also a, a, a guest suggestion, perhaps for yourself, would be uh, Dr. Yeah. Mark Solms, who wrote a book um, about, yeah, the the origin of consciousness in the brain and, and sort of where it came from. The, the guy's book blew my mind and it was oh, wow. somewhat over my head. So maybe you could have like a more intelligent discussion with him than I managed. Um, <laughs> but um, so if yeah. if the if the if the universe is a simulation, does that mean God is a programmer? Mm. Yeah, people have said that. And then, you know, then I'll always push back with respect and say, well, that sounds an awful lot like God. Uh, <laughs> and 99% of the people that profess such a thing are atheists, which is fine. I, I don't, I don't proselytize, I said, and I <laughs> accept all voices, uh, except if, you know, people are militantly attacking something, you know, that that's no fun to talk to. But, um, but on the other hand, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a perfectly interesting and acceptable, you know, hypothesis. 
what might be most you know acceptable about it is that it can maybe immediately be proven wrong or immediately there could be uh, data presupposed or, or scientific limits on it. For example, you could say, well, what would be the information requirement to replicate all levels of uh, experience just of human beings? Forget about simulating you know, the ice inside of a crater on the North Pole of the moon, uh, you know, and, and, and simulating just what human beings experience. And then often they'll say, well, you can't tell me that you exist different, you know, from a brain in a jar, which is the old Descartes, you know, kind of Kirk cogito ergo sum argument. I think therefore I am. Um, so these arguments are very old. Um, and of course, Descartes got out of it by saying a good, you know, God is good. I can envision goodness. I can envision maximal goodness. God is that maximal goodness. And for him to simulate these experiences uh, of thinking would mean that he is not good because these experiences aren't real. And therefore, good God wouldn't do that. Therefore, I exist. So because I think. Um, and so that was his. No, I don't believe that because what if you don't believe there's a God? Or what if like God doesn't exist? You can't prove that God exists. Uh, I readily admit that. Hmm. So, um, so no, I, I, but I think then you can start getting into this discussion. Well, what would be the ethics and morality of a, uh, of a world with a simulated, uh, you, know, you know, an existence that is simulated by some master simulator? Would they be able to pull the plug? Would that be ethical? Um, would you be able to cause pain, knowingly cause pain? You now have all these godlike, you know, and, and then you'd have to say, well, what is pain? What is suffering? How do you make a computer suffer? But even beyond that, the data requirements, and, and usually it's just an extrapolation based on Moore's law, uh, where they conveniently neglect the fact that computing power may grow intrinsically double every 18 months, but the utilization of that power is saturating at a constant level. It's not growing at an exponential level because the more powerful the computer gets, the more people want to use it. It's like Facebook, you know, needs to run on ever more powerful computers. It doesn't make, make it more, more powerful. It just means there's more people using it, which saps the resources that already exist. So it's not gotten any more powerful than it was a decade ago in five doubling cycles, which is basically still reminding you of some annoying friend that you met a long time ago when <laughs> her birthday is. And uh, that I always use Facebook to remind myself to unfriend people that I have no relationship with and regret ever accepting their, that's basically all I use it for nowadays, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, well, Unlike not, my Twitter and, uh, and uh, my podcast. Yeah. I mean, I ditched, I ditched Instagram and Facebook on my um, fuck Mark Zuckerberg campaign. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah I, yeah. I haven't, I haven't yet successfully ditched Twitter, unfortunately. Um, I'm interested yeah. to see what, what Elon's going to do. Cause I mean, if he does the things he says he's going to do, I think it could be really good, but whether that's actually what happens is going to be another question. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the last thing that I, I would like to ask you about, um, since you've you've kind of gone and scuppered one of my other questions about you know being i was i was going to ask is god at the base of physics but you've said you can't prove that so we'll we'll move on to something a little different um it's my one of one of the things that really like made me interested in in physics in the first place was a video i saw when i was in in university um again at 3 a.m um about the <laughs> about the double slit experiment and I've been wondering about the implications of it since I saw the video. And I mean, I don't think you're going to be able to like tell me exactly what it means because I don't think anyone can, yeah. but um, you can give it a go. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the, to me, and this may be just my really poor understanding of it, it made me wonder if the universe is not there when it's not being observed. Like if uh, I am not looking at something or if nothing is looking at something, does that mean it's just sort of, not there in like a wishy-washy sense um so the double slit experiment is of course you know this um this observation in the early 1900s that if you were to um, take an electron and um and fire it through two slits in an opaque screen that you would get this pattern you'd get this um you'd get this pattern that you uh would not expect to be in, in, embodied in the physical world if the electron in some sense doesn't go through both slits at once. Uh, and you could actually prove that it does or does not do that. And so it's really not too far off from what you described, which is the, um, which is this notion of, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound, right? I mean, that's not that dissimilar from, from, as you phrased it, you know, kind of like, uh, 
just a few minutes ago. So um, it's kind of a quantum version of that argument. Now, that was the argument that Galileo first really popularized in the 1600s, which was, you know, basically can is consciousness is the, you know, kind of the observer responsible for the observed ends of a physical phenomenon or do the physical phenomena exist independent of the observer? Because as I said, you can choose to block off one of the two slits and you'll get a different pattern uh, than is actually observed when you don't close off one of the two avenues for the electron to travel in. So, um, so it's kind of weird. We, we kind of anticipate waves will do that. Even light will do that, but an electron is we envision it as a tiny little. It's an elementary particle. You can't subdivide it. In some sense, it sometimes behaves like a little billiard ball. Mm. So how can it go through both paths at once, through through two doors at once? Um, and so it is a great mystery. And and to counteract that mystery, physicists go to all sorts of of gymnastics, including Josh, the invocation of parallel universes. Uh, and I have a conversation with Sean Carroll about that on my podcast for his book, um, Many Worlds in One, I think it's called. Um, and uh, and so I refer folks to that on my YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Brian Keating, or on the podcast, if you can dig it up. And um, these are some of the most interesting questions. Again, uh, the, that question is not an academic one. In fact, it's related tangentially to my search for the origin of the universe, uh, if it was a single Big Bang, or if there are not only uh, multiple instantiations of our universe, but what if there are multiple universes existing in physical space, but separated by such vast distances that we can't access them? That's another version of what's called the multiverse. So these things, the Everettian high quantum mechanics uh, rose in response to the double slit in which the electron does in one universe go through the left slit, other universe goes through the right slit. And in that sense can be made self-consistent with our notions of what reality means, but at the expense of adding at least one universe every time an electron does that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you get the storage space. And it kind of, if that's the answer, it kind of feels like yes. it doesn't chime with the the idea that that they are so far away from each other that we couldn't possibly traverse those distances. Because if they're, if we're seeing the results of two parallel universes in one played out here, it suggests that they're like pressed right up against each other in exactly. the most weird, like fourth dimensional way that I can't really wrap my head around, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not alone there, Josh. Many people can't as well. Okay, so then for one absolutely like very fast question, um, aside from your own books, what is the book that you would most recommend people uh, should read um, to either just fiction or, or anything or just for a, a grasp of science? So um, Roger Rose's books uh, actually were the first real popular science books that I ever read. There's one that involves quantum mechanics, cosmology, uh, the brain, uh, and that's called The Emperor's New Mind. And, um, and I, I have a video up about that on my, on my podcast as well, where I was really delighted as a young kid to read that book as the first book I ever read that was written in a popular science audience. And then for my first book, Sir Roger wrote the blurb on the back of it, uh, and then later went on to win the Nobel Prize, probably because he endorsed my book. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we have no idea. Uh, that had nothing, nothing to do with it. Well, Although I do talk about women and how few women have won the Nobel Prize. And in 2018, when, I, when the book came out, since then, the number of women has doubled from two to four. So I take all that. No, I'm just kidding. I don't take any credit. Uh, well, so your, your books have magical powers. That's what you're telling us. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it, it affects not only if you if you read them, it affects them just when you buy the book. That's all you need to do. Exactly. And then and Find then a dollar bill falls here. in the forest, and I pick it up, and my kids can go to college. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> thank you, Josh. No problem, uh, Brian. I, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating and a lot of fun. So so thank you so much, man. Uh, links for uh, everything that we've talked about, I'll put in the description below. And for your mailing list to get some free space dust um, that's 100% verifiable, not yeah. uh, Tom DeLong style, um, not like that um, fake Da Vinci, I think it's a Da Vinci, that was, uh, so there was the Netflix documentary about all the fake uh, fake artwork. Yeah. Uh, not, nothing like that. It's real 100% nope. stuff. <laughs> Verified. Right. Not like buying a star. You know, it's yeah. actually real. People care about it. I can't believe you, someone's making real... money on that. 
selling. I know, stars. I, I, but it gave me an idea. I'm, I now have the uh, instead of the international star registry, I have the international universe registry as part of the multiverse. So I can sell you not a star. I don't care. I can sell you an entire universe. Mm. Join my mailing list, BrianKeating.com slash list, and you could sign up for your very own universe. <sighs> Does someone have C C one thirty seven already? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll take that. That's the yeah, the just universe. No, that's Thank the you, Rick Josh. and Morty universe. Oh, C-137, that's, right. that's, that's right. what the, the rickest Rick is from. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, very good. Thanks very much, oh, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, too. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.